Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Jaron Lanier. Jaron is a computer scientist, composer, visual artist, and author. He's credited with coining the term virtual reality, was a founding contributing editor of, Wi of Wired. Mr. Lanier is a pianist and a specialist in unusual musical instruments and has played with Philip Glass, Sean Lennon, and Arnett Coleman, among others. In 2005, Lanier was selected as one of the top 100 public intellectuals in the world by readers of Prospect and Foreign Policy magazine. The Encyclopedia Britannica, but certainly not Wikipedia, included him in its list of history 300 or so greatest inventors. You Are Not a Gadget is his first book. Please help me welcome Jaron Lanier. Um, I've started uh, combining my two worlds a, a bit and bringing instruments to my talks. So this is, this, is, um, this is one that I like to take along because it's small enough to fit in carry-on, which, which makes it unusual for, for a, uh, a polyphonic thing anyway. So I'm going to just start with a bit of music, and then I'll tell you what this is. <laughs> oh, are you curious what it is? <laughs> it's older than Western civilization. Uh, it comes from Laos. It's called a can. And um, I think this is the original prototype for the computer. This, this type of instrument, so far as I can tell, is the oldest thing made by people that has an array of similar things that can be turned on and off. It's the first computer memory. But it has a direct lineage, too. Now, I'm about to tell you a story that's perhaps true. <laughs> However, I could tell you a story that would contradict this story that would also perhaps be true. In other words, I'm going to talk about history. <laughs> this traveled across the Silk Route 
It arrived in ancient Greece. The Romans copied it, but they were Romans. So they made a giant version. It was powered by steam. It was called the hydraulis. It was used to create pleasant, cheerful, entertaining music to accompany assassination and gore in the Colosseum. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was kind of like Miami CSI or something. It was uh, this, except with real people. Uh, the hydraulis was so big that people couldn't use their fingers to operate it anymore, so they had these big wooden planks, and they had slave boys moving these planks, and that evolved into the keyboard. The whole thing turned into the pipe organ, but it was so big that from the very beginning there were attempts to automate the playing of it because it was just hard to operate. So from the earliest days of pipe organs, there were attempts to make player pipe organs. That evolved into the player piano, and a particularly interesting one that was an improvising player piano, which inspired the Jacquard loom, programmable loom, which then inspired the first general purpose calculator, Charles Babbage's machines, and thus the digital computer. So here we have the prototype. <laughs> this is, it's, it's this thing's fault. <laughs> this is the problem right here. This is the evil seed. It is this thing that deceives us all. So in human affairs, we are very frequently asked to endure some new revelation of how dismal we can behave towards each other. Before fairly recently, we didn't imagine that somebody would impregnate a woman in order to get her to board a flight with a bomb that would kill her and the unborn child and everyone on the flight to go to that much trouble just to set up a terrorist event, and yet that happened. And there are many other examples like that. However, even though it's only rarely the case, we do get to also see revelations of how people can be better than we expected ourselves to be. And there was a gigantic example of that, a massive positive revelation that occurred very recently, just in the 90s. And that was when the web first came about. And the revelation was that if you made the web available, millions and millions of people would suddenly cease being purely receptive couch potatoes and would instead become expressive, creative people with something to say, something to do, a lot of energy and a lot of competency, even without advertising, religion, fear, coercion, profit motive, or any of the traditional crap, simply because it was a good ideal. A good idea. And that was the first decade of the web. That was the 90s. That was a fundamental new piece of good news about human potential. Doesn't happen a lot. So we really ought to take the time to notice it when it happens. It came as a surprise to a lot of people. Before the 90s, there had been an extensive period in which the web was anticipated, more extensive than people would think. The first really spot-on, detailed description of the web as it exists today is over a century old. It, uh, yes, you look startled, my friend. I am speaking of a short story by one E.M. Forster called The Machine Stops. Who's read it? Well, you should all read it. Go home and pirate it off of <laughs> something tonight. I, well, it's public domain by now, I'm sure. Um, but uh, Merchant Ivory have not made a movie of it. Great shame. Somebody ought to. Um, this is the same author who wrote Room with a View and, and, and all these other uh, 
romantic, romantic stories that turned into great films. Uh, in this case, Forster wrote this beautiful story that describes exactly what's going on today. It included Twitter, it included YouTube, and it included the whole thing. I mean, it's just astonishing. And it's a dystopian story. In this story, people feel that their lives have been leached, that they're not as real as they used to be. And the good news at the end is that the internet breaks down. That's the machine stopping. And everybody goes outside and they say, the sun, the real world. Now, of course, that I am a technologist, and I'm a technological optimist, and I don't want us to be living in the machine stops world. I want us to be living in a better world than that. And I couldn't prove it was possible until this event in the 90s. But now we know, we actually know that if we give people a chance, we're capable of being better than passive, which is really something. Now, unfortunately, Everything turned bad, <laughs> not, not quite everything. What I would say is a sour, smelly rind grew on the surface of this beautiful thing called the internet. And it can still be scraped off, perhaps. I just came up with that this morning on the radio. There's just a, a bad layer on this beautiful, beautiful thing. And it arose quite recently, just in the last decade. I wrote the book because I want to undo it. I'm partially responsible for it. I was part of the circle of people that came up with it. And so I feel a responsibility to speak out against it now. What changed for me, and I'll get into what it is and the details, but I want to just give you the big picture here. What changed for me is empirical results. Starting 20 years ago, a circle of friends that I, I was a member of had a certain thought about how this online thing could happen and how it would be good for humanity. And some of those thoughts included the idea that artists should give away their stuff for free, and that this whole idea of being paid for expression was actually this bad thing that would just make people slaves of media companies, and it should be all freed up, and that the result would be good. It wasn't a stupid hypothesis, and a lot of it in theory still sounds good. And if you want to argue on a, on a purely theoretical level, it's not, it's not the worst theory that's ever been presented at all. However, 17 years into the web, 10 years into web 2.0, I set out to look at what was actually happening in the real lives of artists, writers, journalists, illustrators, and so forth. And what I found is that this myth of the people who are really living this way by giving away stuff and somehow finding other ways to make a living, it just wasn't working. There were only tiny, tiny token examples. And I realized that we're losing a generation there's no shame in having a radical idea, but there is shame in being unable or unwilling to recognize that it's failed. And there's a question of how long to wait. Some of my friends think we should wait 50 years. I disagree. I think one generation is enough of an experiment when it involves real people. So it's the data that turned me around. Now, what I'm going to do tonight is describe a little bit of how the mistake happened what the mistake consists of, and how we might get out of it, and why it's important. Uh, it's a big topic. Even the book is only an introduction, so I can't tie up every loose end in one little talk. But I hope I can give you a feeling for what I think is one of the more important issues going on. Obviously, we live in a perilous world. We live in a world in which we might screw over ourselves by failing to deal with climate change, 
nuclear weapons, a world of things, um, economic failures. Um, the, I mean, the list goes on. Um, however, aside from avoiding perils, we also have to build the society that we want to live on, live in at the same time. Mere survival isn't enough. In fact, we have to have a vision of a society that is working, I think, in order to really properly organize ourselves to face our perils. So I, I view the things I'm talking about as being a necessary corollary to surviving the very well-known and very real perils that we're dealing with. This is going to be a tough century. We're signed up for a challenge here. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So let's get into the mistake and how it happened. A good place to start, weirdly enough, is the 19th century. In the 19th century, industrialization was zooming, accelerating, experiencing its sort of steam-driven, gear-operated version of Moore's Law, if anybody gets that here. I just came from this Bay Area where they're all nerds in the audience and they get all... So if I, if I do any nerdy or geeky jokes, just, I don't know. I guess all you can do is just sit there and wonder, what the hell is he talking about? Um, it's my culture. I can't help it. Uh, and an interesting thing started to happen. As the machines got better, the people who were using one generation of machines were suddenly thrown out of work when a new generation of machines came along. Some famous examples are John Henry in the competition with the uh, uh, railroad-making robot. And another is the Luddites, who rioted over fear of job loss due to looms, better looms. Um, in both cases, the concerns were absolutely legitimate. Uh, it's not only that livelihoods were, ex were at stake, but in both the case of the Luddites and the John Henry myth, there was also something about human dignity at stake, that people shouldn't think of themselves as disposable parts who uh, are worthless once the right machine comes along to replace them. There's a wonderful line in Brother Can You Spare a Dime, a Depression-era ballad that's uh, ever more relevant, unfortunately. Uh, and it is, uh, once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? And this notion that a person is only good in the moment when they can offer something that can't be had some other way, and then suddenly they're worthless. Now, in response to these concerns, there were a really interesting series of ideas that came up. Marx is the most influential example. And Marx really is a technology writer. Uh, I realized this once when I was driving in Silicon Valley, and I heard some spiel on the radio about some new startup. And it was talking about how international markets would open up and barriers would be, would be torn down and trade would increase at an, at an accelerating pace and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, not this stupid Web 2.0 stuff again. I just can't bear to hear this rhetoric anymore. Stop, stop. And it turned out to be an anniversary reading of Das Kapital. <laughs> and uh, so Marx is another guy who I think, very much like E.M. Forster, came to the wrong conclusion. He sort of visualized the wrong future, and yet he had an amazing grasp of the dynamic. And it was very simple, that machines were clearly getting better and better. Uh, and at some point, there's this problem of obsolescence of human beings. If the machines get really good, what will people do for a living? So um, it goes back even farther, if you really care to. There's a, the, Aristotle even talks about how as soon as the looms operate themselves, the slaves will go free, but also be unfed. He didn't add that last little part. <laughs> They'll go free and die. <laughs> it's sort of a die free. Instead of, instead of uh, live, live free, it's sort of uh, go free and die. Um, so uh, Marx, of course, imagined 
this other system that wouldn't have people earning their own way, communism. And the problem with Marx's vision is, has been borne out by every experiment with communism, but it's embedded in Marx's writing itself. Marx has this image of what should happen after the revolution. And it's kind of cute, but it's also not the world I want to live in. He says, after the revolution, everybody will be able to not they won't be able, they will lounge about in beautiful lawns, practice archery, and read the classics. And I don't like archery. And, and there's the rub, right? Because uh, the problem is if you end up in a system that, that is making this good world for you because you're not needed, you also lose a sense of self-determination, self-invention, liberty, and all these things we talk about in America. But that stuff's actually for real. And uh, every socialist system has been bad for eccentrics so far, or it's even killed them, even though some of them have been admirable in some ways. I don't think I could personally do well in any of them. And I think people like me are kind of important, uh, if I may say so. Maybe that's, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> being overly self-important. But you need to have the weirdos. And it's very hard to keep weirdos in a system that's, that's too planned. So that was Marx's idea. Um, but it was exactly about this question of the end game of technology. What happens when the machines actually get good enough? Another 19th century thinker who just really nailed one possible future, which unfortunately is the one we're creating right now, is H.G. Wells with the time machine. So if you don't remember the time machine, uh, what happens is the machines get good enough to take, so that people don't have to work anymore, but only a tiny percentage of people really enjoy them, and other people don't. And what happens is the human species diverges into two species. Um, neither of which is particularly uh, attractive, it must be said. The ones who benefit become kind of uh, indolent, spoiled, listless, and the ones who don't benefit become pathetic and, and miserable. And that is, in fact, the future we're creating right now. In the last decade, we've taken a turn into the time machine feature. And I'll explain a bit more about that, and it's one we have to turn around from. What we have to do is a better job at visualizing the future of this end game of when technology gets good than anybody did in the 19th century. Nobody was able to get that right, but that doesn't mean that there's no possible positive vision. Uh, I don't claim to be able to have that or to provide it to you tonight, but I do think I have at least some hints of it, and I'd like to engage you in thinking about it. Let's talk about how things have gone wrong, and I'm going to relate this story back actually to these 19th century frameworks because they actually, they're both the first and the best and the clearest. One thing that went wrong has to do with, I'd say, a confusion between anarchy and democracy, which happens all the time. It's very natural to say everything should be as open and as free as possible. Everyone should be able to see everything, do everything, and so forth, and there should be as little, uh, as little structure as possible. And Counterintuitively, if you take that approach of everything being as open as possible, you end up actually closing things off. And in order to try to get at how this contradiction comes about, I'm going to give you a few different examples. And I'm going to start with primordial biology. Go back to the origins of life on Earth, and you can go back to a time before there were cells. There were genes before there were cells. And what there was at that time was this global mush, a goo, an ooze over the planet. There wasn't a lot of structure. There wasn't a lot of interesting creative evolution. The cell wall evolved, and the cell wall allowed evolution to take a completely different and more creative course, because as soon as genes are contained within a cell wall, it allows evolution to ask a more complex, 
a more sustained and a more subtle question. You can say, here's a whole organism. Let's see what happens after a while. What if a bunch of these are in an environment? And evolution in the context of encapsulation with the cell wall suddenly was creative. And you had this explosion of forms. Of and we're part of that. Now, the interesting thing about encapsulation is it's neither open nor closed. And it's structured, but in a sort of a non-judgmental way, in a very open and fair and general way. Um, when there are many examples of, of encapsulation. Uh, here's another one. Uh, when a group of scientists is doing research, they don't publish until they're ready. They, they have to wait to get their, to, to introspect, to get their ducks in a row, to test their data. They might do some peer review, but publish they must. And so when you have encapsulation, it's never permanent. Encapsulation is always a periodic thing, where there's periods of temporary closeness that allows you to introspect, to ask a deeper question. And then the openness happens, and that's the answer. So in evolution, that leads to a phenomenon called punctuated equilibrium, as Stephen Jay Gould called it. I think the most important example of encapsulation for us is the individual human being. The ability for the person to define themselves, to redefine themselves, to forget parts of themselves, to introspect, to be internal for a while, to have an inner life. These things are essential. It also applies to groups of people. The difference between anarchy and democracy is essentially that democracy has mechanisms which mirror and correct for uh, flaws in our biology, if I can put it that way. If everybody connects to everything, you have a mob. Um, in the book, I put forward the hypothesis that humans are one example, among many, of creatures who evolve to be either singletons or mob members. And I think within the human spirit exists a switch. The switch can be turned to individual or pack member. Uh, it's, as I say, it's true for other creatures as well. <clears throat> I feel it in myself. Sometimes when I'm in an online design that encourages cheap uh, anonymity with no sense of commitment and little sense of consequence, that brings out ugliness in people, like uh, a comment section in a blog or it, after a YouTube video. There are many, many examples like that. I find myself sometimes being drawn into pissing matches, getting mean. I find myself being happy that someone else is getting dumped on because it gives me temporary safety, I find myself a mob member. You, you can tell you're a mob member when you're with a group of people who have designated one enemy within who's the low person on the totem pole, like, uh, say, a Republican politician who isn't uh, pure enough to, you know, by some purity test. That would be an example. Um, and also an external enemy who's the competing clan. As soon as you can detect those two things, you're a mob member. And I find myself falling into that. Uh, it's within all of us, and it's uncontrollable. Once it's, the switch is so seductive, it's so powerful, and it, it, it's always there. If you look at human history, there are examples of egregious evil that don't involve mobs. Jack the Ripper was apparently an individual, not a mob. So you can have bad people. But most of the worst examples of bad human behavior involve the mob switch being turned to the mob setting. Uh, the fascias, the communes, the cults. Um, in the Bay Area, uh, a very, uh, an example that's still fresh for us is the People's Temple. Um, 
This is something that's inside us. Now, what democracy does is it gives you uh, a, uh, a mixture of different hierarchies of success where you can have, you might be rich, but not, don't have political power. You might have political power, but might not be rich. You might have reputation, you might have fame, but not have political power. It's very rare for them to coincide, as with our, our governor. But um, <laughs> even, <laughs> he doesn't have geek credibility. Uh, and so what, what, what a functioning dem, um, democratic capitalist system does is it creates a confusing overlay of different hierarchies that break up the mob possibility with just sheer confusion. That's one way to survive. That's a necessary structure that people have to have. Without that, we will kill ourselves. Um, but then uh, another thing is uh, what in geek parlance we would call a low-pass filter. We create these structures where you elect a president and there's four years to get the answer. It's just like the cell wall. It, gives, it allows you to ask a somewhat complex question with periodic openness instead of constant openness. If we had a Wikipedia running the government, it there would just be this total chaos of everything always and things would evolve very rapidly. Now, there's a concept called the wisdom of crowds, which is real. Uh, the, the, uh, the first lecture in any business school curriculum is usually about guessing the weight of an ox in a marketplace or something similar. You have a whole bunch of people guess the weight, you average them, and it's, it's better than most individual guesses. And the reason for that is each person has a strategy that has a bit of truth to it, and they kind of center around the truth. In order for that to work, there has to be a single numeric number output. The thing that the crowd cannot do is anything synthetic or complex. It can't combine components and it can't invent. We have a term for what happens when you try to do that, which is designed by committee, which creates a sort of ugly averaging. Okay, so I've, I've gone on and on about this because um, one of the big confusions that happened in the internet was this confusion of having punctuated equilibrium, encapsulation, democracy, instead of a wide open, everything connected to everything, mush or anarchy. Uh, and what ha the mistake was to choose the wide open mush. A recent example was a couple of days ago, uh, Hillary Clinton gave a talk about China, which certainly deserved to be chided, in which she was saying, well, you know, they should be totally open, everything should be open. And I actually think she kind of missed the point and didn't communicate to them. What she should have said to them is, the Chinese should have a chance to develop without us seeing it a billion dollar movie and make $10 billion from us wanting to see it and buy tickets. That's the world we want to live in. In other words, what we should do is ask them to buy into a world of encapsulation, which means intellectual property rights, that they can benefit from. That would be the better answer. That's the only way to bring them into it. Uh, if we want them to pay for our movies, we should let them know we might want to pay for theirs. Now, if you <clears throat> can enter into this world of encapsulation, <laughs> you defeat the second problem. The first problem is the confusion of democracy with anarchy. The second problem is far more extraordinary and exotic than that. Anarchy and democracy have been confused since ancient times. The next thing is new. The next thing is that a new religion has been born fairly recently that is just for digital geeks. 
But it's a religion that has all the features of traditional religions. Its believers are as intense as believers in other religions and as unable to empathize with people who don't believe as any other sort of believer. This religion doesn't exactly have a name, but it's sometimes called posthumanism or sing singularitarianism, <laughs> other sorts of odd names. And it was invented in a remarkably poignant way, given that we just hear that finally Don't Ask, Don't Tell might be retired from the military, because it has its origin in an egregious act of homophobia within a military. And I'm ref does anybody know what I'm talking about yet? I'm talking about the death of Alan Turing. Alan Turing was one of the principal inventors of computers. He and uh, one other guy set up the mathematical foundations of computation as we understand it. He is probably the most celebrated computer scientist and unquestionably one of the great mathematicians in history. But he's also one of the great warriors. He was the fellow who first used a computer to break a secret code. And the code he broke was called Enigma. It was a secret code used by the Nazis that Nazi mathematicians believed was completely invulnerable. In breaking Enigma, Turing gave England a, an advantage in the war that might have been critical to its very survival. If Turing had failed, we might be living in a very different world. It was a dramatic, extraordinary moment, perhaps even more so than the Manhattan Project because so many fewer people were involved, when a tiny group of mathematicians changed history. So here you have a war hero. There's a problem. He happens to be gay in a society in which it's illegal to be gay. Now let us recall that in England at this time, we didn't yet have the benefit of computers as a metaphor to misunderstand ourselves. So we were stuck with the steam engine to misunderstand ourselves. And this was uh, the Freudian set of misunderstandings. So the notion was that, well, if somebody's gay, it must mean that a certain sort of pressure is building up within them. Well, we don't really have any way to let the pressure out. There isn't any sort of little output you know, valve. Um, so maybe if we put in the opposite kind of pressure, it'll balance them out. And this astonishingly ridiculous chain of thought led to the idea that Turing should be forced to endure massive doses of female hormones. He developed breasts, he developed other female characteristics and became terribly depressed and did something astonishing. He created a ritual in which he turned into a sort of an anti-Eve in order to kill himself. He laced an apple with cyanide in his lab and ate it and collapsed in front of his machines. Now, just before Turing's death, he wrote something down which has the most unusual quality in that it contains a genuinely new spiritual idea. And this happens very, very rarely indeed. Turing wrote down a notion that we know of as the Turing test. It was a thought experiment. Uh, during these days post-war, uh, thought experiments were high prestige activities because Einstein had used them to work out his ideas and that made these big bombs. So everybody was into thought experiments. So <laughs> in Turing's thought experiment, you start with a man and a woman and they each, uh, what, we, what we would call it today is they each tweet at you. 
You receive their tweets, and he asks, could you tell the man from the woman? Maybe either of them is trying to deceive you or something. Can't imagine why he would have been interested in that. <laughs> then he says, let's get rid of the woman, and we're going to replace her with a machine. Now there's going to be a computer tweeting at you and a man tweeting at you. Can you tell them apart? And then he says this remarkable thing, which is, if you can't tell them apart, and you're unwilling to grant human status or rights to the computer, aren't you guilty of some sort of, well, fascism? Aren't you guilty of doing something similar to what the Nazis were doing, the people that we just worked so hard to defeat? Well, he didn't actually, he didn't say it quite that way. Now, I have to say that we know very little about what Turing thought about his test because he died so shortly after his first expression of it. We do have a few hints based on footnotes he left behind and technical papers and odd little scratches here and there. So it's very, very hard to really discern his intent and his thinking. And he was obviously, well, being tortured at the time. So it, it's just very hard to, and so I want to say that anything I say about Turing, um, you should keep in mind that no one really knows what was going through his head. It's impossible to know. At any rate, <coughs> uh, with that caveat, it seems plain to me that what Turing did is he actually invented a new form of death denial, which is the fundamental component of building a new religion. Not necessarily a new form of spirituality, but certainly a new religion. And what Turing did is he imagined, he identified with this, with this pristine form of life, which would be the life inside the digital device. If a computer could be like a person, then a person could be like a computer and computers are free from the vagaries of sexuality. They can't be tortured with sex hormones. Computers don't have gender. They don't get sick. They don't die. Now, I have to say that at the time Turing wrote this, nobody had written a large program yet. Had he experienced what happens when programs get big, I think he would not have thought of them as these pristine things. But in the context in which he knew them, this made sense. Because little programs do have that quality. That's the difference between real and ideal computers, uh, which is important to keep in mind. But at, at any rate, Turing invented this notion of identifying with the computer. Now, there's a, uh, a, a range of cognitive states that are fairly common in people, but especially in males, which we think of as uh, the spectrum of, of Asperger's syndrome-like cognition. Um, sort of very a touch of autism, very, very common. And that is a way of being in which a person has a bit of trouble in empathizing and getting where other people are coming from. And since so many men have that, and they tend to be technically inclined, and Turing came up with this, Turing himself I don't think was like that, but he came up with this remarkable idea. The two things combined together, and thus the nerd or the geek was born. This is the origin of the nerdy, geeky feeling in computerdom. Uh, now, the original idea was just a tiny seed, but it's evolved into an elaborate theology. For instance, uh, any religion um, worth losing your life savings for has some vision of the, ends of, the end of days, some, some portentous events that only the initiated can understand, some coming messiah or conflagration of some kind. Um, in American evangelical thinking, there's the rapture. In this world of digital religion, 
there's a thing called the singularity, which is supposed to be a moment that'll happen maybe in the 2020s sometime, uh, when all the computers get so good they start redesigning their own successors and the process of computer improvement speeds up and speeds up and suddenly they take over the world in the blink of an eye and then the big computer at the core of the internet becomes so big that it's so capacious it just figures out a way to scan all our brains and then we live forever within it. Now, if this sounds goofy, it is really, really goofy. Um, but it's also incredibly influential in, tech, in the technical world. You see books about the singularity and related ideas all the time in computer science departments. Um, I would say singularity books in computer science departments or in engineering departments in big companies are at least as common as rapture books are in a Bible bookstore or something like that. They're, they're everywhere. There's a whole university that teaches this theology called the Singularity University that's next door to Google in Silicon Valley, and you can go there and sign up for courses, it's expensive, it's totally booked. This is actually influential, even though it's really nutty. Um, but that's how religions are. These really nutty things all of a sudden become influential when you least expect them to. It happens again and again in human affairs all the time throughout history. So, in order to believe that the computers are coming alive in order to scoop up our brains, so that we won't have to die, and we can enjoy this pristine denial of sexuality, aging, and death that Turing longed for. You have to pretend that computers are doing the work that people are actually doing. And an enormous amount of computer engineering is actually devoted to creating this illusion. Huge, huge, epochal, global resources are devoted to creating this illusion at the direction of engineers. Now, I also should say at this point that um, when I talk about this stuff, I live this really weird life because all the people I'm criticizing are close friends. So um, the people who, the Google kids and Ray Kurzweil, who's a big singularity guy, he founded that university I mentioned, these are all people I, I know. And so I'm, I'm um, uh, nothing I'm saying to you would be different from what I would say to them. They all know I say these things. But it's a, it's a very peculiar life I'm leading at the moment. <laughs> but at any rate, um, let me give you some examples of how this ritual design process works. Since Microsoft's been supporting my research, I'm going to start by ratting on them because <laughs> I'm, I'm about to criticize some of the others and I want to keep it balanced. Fair and balanced, you know. So um, you're typing in Microsoft Word. And suddenly the thing decides, hey, this user wants to start an outline. And now you're in outline mode. And they go, oh, no, 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 it went into outline, oh, no. And then you have to sort of pick your way out of it. Now, um, I know the people who did that. And they're lovely, sweet people, people I really like. I count as friends, the main guy I've known for 30 years. But they really do kind of believe this stuff. And so from their perspective, the computer's getting smart. It's turning into your partner. But the problem is that there's no objective way to measure if they're right. Because they say, look, it's getting to know better when you want to start an outline. But what, what I think is happening is that users are just putting in double effort to try to figure out how to avoid triggering the outline. <laughs> and the problem is there's no way you can discern which is really happening. See, the problem is that the, what Turing really taught us with the Turing test is that the only way to judge if another person's really there is subjective. It's a matter of faith. Uh, if you really want to believe 
a computer is getting human-like or smart, there's absolutely no way you can tell to what degree you're bending over backwards to make yourself into an idiot to make that seem so. And that's absolutely universally true. I'm going to give you a bunch of other examples here just in quick succession so you can see the pattern. Teaching to the test and no child left behind. We, we make all our teachers stupid in order to make an algorithm seem smart. Oh, these schools are improving. It's ridiculous. Computers cannot represent people. To, 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 to tell a teacher you cannot exercise judgment is to order the teacher to be a moron. You know, I mean, it's just as simple as that, period. Um, algorithms that can judge the risk in mortgages. That search engine really knows what you want, doesn't it? Okay, of course it doesn't. Uh, I mean, if you, we don't know how the brain works. Um, in the book, I have some speculations on how meaning might have evolved and how some things work, just to, as part of an argument for how, what kind of philosophy to use to think about the brain if you still want to believe people are special. But we don't know how the brain works, and besides that, software sucks always. I mean, Apple is a really sharp company, and it took them two years to add cut, copy, paste. And, uh, and that's just because software sucks. So the search engine does not know what you want. All right, it's just, it's just, it's just this illusion. Now, um, uh, in the book, what I present is the idea that there's no way to know for sure if a computer is becoming a person or not. There's no way to know for sure even if a person is really conscious inside. But one thing I will tell you is that unless you're willing to, at least while you're being a technologist, believe that people are somehow supernaturally superior to computers, unless you can take that belief to heart, you will write crap code. And so, therefore, there's a very strong pragmatic to believe, reason to believe in a sort of a supernaturalness to the human, or, that, or to put it another way, that consciousness is real, or so forth. Now, um, I also think that there are other occasions when it's appropriate not to believe that. I think when you're being a natural scientist, you can believe different things. But when you're acting on your own volition to improve human affairs, you had better believe in people, or else you'll screw up. Now, the biggest ritual of human erasure, of trying to pretend that the machine's doing something instead of the people, is this Web 2.0 crap. And now I'm going to start to sort of speed up because I'm, I'm, the, 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 uh, I'm about to be yanked, I think. <laughs> but uh, the, so the Web 2.0 idea is fairly recent. And the basic notion is that we take these old ideals we had where we confuse democracy with anarchy, but instead of just anarchy where everybody can mash up everything and everything's free, we, use, we, we sell advertising with it. So uh, there's one form of contextual protected speech, which is advertising, and everything else is demoted. So the job of civilization becomes advertising. And then what you have, uh, you know, Len, going back to Marx, uh, Lenin said property is theft. In this case, um, uh, privacy is theft, because it's your lack of privacy that's the product that is sold to advertisers by companies like Facebook and so forth that mash you up into little fragments, except they're not really. This is the sort of amazing thing. The Facebooks and the Twitters, and I'm not totally against it, but I want to make it clear, I'm not a fanatic here. If you're finding uses for Facebook and Twitter, do it. Do what works for you. I'm not anti these tools, and I think there are plenty of good ways to use them. I'm, I'm speaking with a broad brush in the big picture, and it's important to understand that. But at any rate, these, these businesses are not real businesses. They're rituals of the new religion. The idea is to erase the people so that it seems as though there's all this data that's becoming smart. 
Facebook is not making money. It's just fed a life support stream by Google and, and Microsoft uh, to, to keep alive, but it's not a real business. It doesn't make money, neither does Twitter. If these things were at least businesses, you could say, well, hey, at least they're businesses, even if they're, we might not like, like, you know, with, with, if there's some corporation that one might dislike, at least it is a business and somebody's somehow making money. So there might be something to salvage, but this is just pure ritual. And the, the ritual is specifically to erase people to create the illusion that the net's coming alive. So it's theology. It really is. You know, I mean, I know it must sound crazy for me to say this, but if you read the stuff from the people who are doing it, this is what you'll, you'll find. All right, so going back to the start of the web, the web was first conceived by Ian e. Forster over a century ago, but the first engineering vision of it is due to a fellow named Ted Nelson. Uh, who was, uh, who's still with us. He's a weird hippie guy. His parents were film stars. And he was a software engineer. And in, starting in the 60s, he conceived of what he called hypertext. And the HT in HTML is from hypertext. The web is the direct extension of Ted's work. And when Ted looked at it, he had this remarkable foresight, which we can call first thought, best thought. He was able to see it before it was cluttered up by all the other nonsense of other people's work, and he saw it with incredible clarity, and he said, you know, just having everything accessible everywhere will just make this big mush, and everybody will get stupid. What should happen is there should be a universal, democratic, not anarchic, way for people to sell stuff to each other so that anybody who wants to express something can make some money off it. And that way, when the machines get good, instead of the deadened world of Marx, or the species bifurcation world, the miserable world of wells, or the alienated dull world of the foresters, the machine stops, we could have a world of sustained, sustainable liberty where in the context of really good technology, we reinvent ourselves, we form our own personalities, we design our own lives, and we fund it all by selling each other's ideas, designs, and so forth. This idea, expresses an incredible optimism in people because it suggests that people are fundamentally expressive, active, and competent instead of passive, receptive, and idiots. Now, in the old days when Ted was talking about this stuff, he would be shouted down by two types of people. One was the American left at the time, which was sort of Maoist, uh, campus Maoist, I'd call them. And they would actually rush the stage with red flags. Seriously, it's sort of so silly to think about it. No money in the digital universe. Down with Ted. Down with all this stuff. And they would shout him down so he couldn't say a word. Uh, I, I, I have this memory of one of these events where they wouldn't let him talk. And he, uh, can, I use, can I say something blue profane on this? Is this going to be like on the radio? He, he looked out at them and just said, all I can say is fuck you too. There's no, there was, that was the only thing he had room to say. But then there, were, there was another group of people who were far more common who would say, you guys, and this included me, you guys are such ridiculous idealists. You don't know anything. Everybody wants to be passive. Nobody wants to do anything. You're just wrong. You're, you just have this optimism about people. But the 90s proved that the optimism was right. It turned out that optimism was justified. So we can have that world. We're not doomed to the 19th century dystopias. We actually can. We know at least there's this potential to create a utopia, a real one. We didn't know that before. It was just weird speculation. Nobody even dared to really, really believe it in their hearts. But it turns out to be true. Or more precisely, 
what we can say is in the long term, when the machines get good, the ratio of passivity to creativity in people on a whole is what will determine the ratio of socialism to capitalism or uh, institutionalization to liberty or some, some dichotomy like that. Uh, and I think the balance is mostly in favor of individuals being competent. So while my book is filled with criticisms of various things, it might seem negative in tone in many ways, it's actually an expression of profound optimism in people overall, which I think is utterly justified. Now, I, I want to make clear one idea that you have to get, a practical idea. Um, right now, this notion of everything being free is something that a generation of people have grown up on. And for a lot of people who are like in their 20s, I'd say is the key age to have grown up on this, that notion that everything should be free, the sort of Creative Commons, Linux, Wikipedia, blah, 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 the mashup stuff, all of that is not just an idea. It's more than an idea. It's, it's like the way you've bonded with your friends. It's the way you identify with goodness. It's part of you. Now, this is a problem. Um, I want to say that when an idea is more than an idea, when it's part of what is good in the world for you, when it's part of what is good between you and your friends, realizing that if the idea happens to be wrong, you have to be patient with people. I've had to give up ideas, and it takes me 10 years to give up an idea I'm attached to, even if I try really hard. I think if somebody means well, is competent and decent and honest, and is attached to an idea that's wrong, we need to give them 10 years. And that counts for religious fanatics. It counts for all sorts of people. That's, that's just how long it takes. And it's, it's one of the more difficult and more dignified things a person can do, to give up an idea just because it's wrong, even though they're attached to the idea. It's hard. So we should never. Uh, we should be patient. I mean, we have to be patient with people. Um, obviously, when I say this to somebody who believes this stuff, it must sound terribly arrogant. And I, I don't know what. I mean, the thing is, the context in which I'm in, in, in Silicon Valley, is so blaringly self-congratulatory and rah-rah that I have to be pretty intense encountering it. And I sometimes wonder if I'm away from home, if it sounds like I'm being overly intense encountering it. It's very hard to get that balance right. Um, now, the, here's the practical thing I want you to understand. Right now, the people who have been disenfranchised empirically, not theoretically, but in reality, by the everything should be open free are pretty specific classes of people. Musicians, journalists, illustrators, investigative reporters, um, people who depend on copyright. To a degree, software writers, actually, because the market for software has actually shrunk because there's so many fake businesses. That's a whole complicated thing. but. Uh, an example of that is if you look at the Apple App Store, you see entrepreneurs really putting effort into trying to make money with apps, whether they succeed or not. And if you look at the Droid App Stores, you see people putting a minimum amount of effort in because it's all hopeless. And you really see this disparity very, very clearly. And if you doubt me, look. Look at it. All right, but anyway, so right now there are these specific classes of people, and as long as they're fairly specific classes of people, one can imagine a way out where you simply design institutions to pay for keeping those people going. Thanks for coming, by the way. You don't, you don't have to, you don't, oh, okay, you don't have to slink out. Anyway, um, uh, so you could, you could come, right now there are a lot of efforts to come up with institutions to keep 
investigative journalists working when the newspapers are kicked out by the open culture movement, which is apparently happening. That would be fine with me if it stopped there, because the classes of people affected are small enough that we could conceivably come up with institutions to fix that limited problem. But you have to understand that this, this ramp of progress that can put people out of work, which was discerned in the 19th century, doesn't stop there. To get you to see it, think about this. One of the pieces of advice we give to musicians who can't make money from recordings anymore is give away the recordings but sell the t-shirt. Okay. Um, the problem with that is that surely in 10 years there'll be really cheap home robots that can replicate themselves, because this, this already more or less exists, that can make you a t-shirt of any design or any clothing from the internet. So now the design will be as worthless as music you burn, rip and burn onto a CD. This principle is general. As time goes on, more and more physical ways to make a living <coughs> will go away as the machines get better. And for some more examples, you can read my book. But we, app, we have to solve this, because it's not just the creative left coast, you know, liberal blue people who are disenfranchised by this. Eventually, it's everybody. It's, it's essential that we fix it. All right, you know, I think I'm, I'm sort of getting the vibe. It's time to stop. <laughs> There's so much more I could tell you. But um, I hope, thank you so much for coming. Um, and, Hi, I'm Jerry Fialka. Thank you so much. It's so sad you got to stop early, but uh, my question concerns James Joyce writing Finnegan's Wake from 1922 to 1939. He basically created what's called a living organism in form of a book, and he basically invented what's going to be after the web. And that is because Wyndham Lewis said it so well. He said, artists live in the present and thus write a detailed history of the future. Have you ever done what is supposed to be done, according to James Joyce, with Finnegan's Wake, and that is read it aloud with a group of people? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is that um, many of my friends in the Bay Area are convinced that there are no intellectuals in Los Angeles, and so in order for me to remain comfortable in my peer group, I will not inform them of your question. Um, the second thing I'll tell you is that when I was 17, I had the good fortune to have an Irish lit professor who was a poet himself named Robert Kelly who insisted that all of us read Finnegan's Wake aloud. Everyone else was drunk, but I've never liked alcohol, so I pretended to be drunk. And uh, Finnegan's Wake uh, I want to say just a couple things about it, actually. One thing about it is that in my reading of it, a lot of what it's about is this tension of the mob versus the individual. Here comes everybody is the mob. And there's this, and, and there's this tension within us between the two. And I, I think it's explored very much in that book, if I understand it, you know, God knows. But um, at least some parts of it seem pretty clear to me. It all had a great rhythm. I mean, it was sort of like a great piece of rap music in a way, just like wonderful sounds and just endless puns. Um, but what I do want, um, I want to point out that he took a long time to write it. It was hard. One of the problems we have now with uh, the online culture is what I call youthiness, with apologies to Colbert. 
So youthiness means that you pretend, for instance, that musicians can make a living by touring forever, because that's something only young musicians can do. If you want to have kids, if you might get sick, if you might have to take care of a partner who's ill, if you might get old, the only way to have dignity is to not have to sing for your supper for every damn meal. And uh, the tradition of publishing and copyright, while it has its enormous imperfections, and I'm certainly uh, the first to agree that reforms are in order, but it has granted people that dignity so that there's a possibility to encapsulate and take a long time to write something, but there's also the possibility to, have to earn some sense of dignity. And, and that's crucial. And I'm very concerned about losing that. Yesterday, Apple made a big deal out of the uh, the, uh, the latest releases, mm -hmm. new technology, the iPad. Got uh, endless amounts of coverage. Part of the conversation was whether this is going to save publishing or not, uh, whether it's going to uh, pull newspapers out of the funk that they're perpetually in. I I'm curious, does this or any other technology have the opportunity or the power to provide mm. the encapsulation that you talk about? Yeah. Oh, I have such mixed feelings. Um, all right, let me talk about what I like about what Apple's doing, and let me, talk, let me talk about what I don't like about what they're doing. What I like about it is that they're one of the only shops that's figured out a way to get any money at all, even though it's a lot less than we used to get to musicians and, uh, and, and various other creative people. And I could say the same thing about Amazon. And I might mention Xbox Live and some of these other walled gardens. They're the only game in town right now. So you got to love them for that. Now, uh, I think they're not the answer, though. And we have to evolve to something better. And it's going to be very hard to get from where we are to that. But I just don't see any choice. Somehow, we're going to have to wend our way to it. One problem is that if there's any behavioral overhead at all to move from one walled garden to another. If you have to have a new password and keep up a different credit card account to move from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to Xbox Live to Kindle to, to iPad, it's only going to be human capacity to keep up with, I don't know, seven plus or minus you know, two <laughs> of these things. I mean, like you can't have millions of different places. So what it does is it creates centralized media empires and implied with that is something terribly sad, which is two classes of people. So if you look at the iPad, it's the first thing that's kind of like a real computer that is really not able to program its own content. One of the beautiful ideas about the PC was that every PC was both a content delivery device and also a content creation device. But these walled gardens create these double classes of people. The only way forward is a universal, genuinely universal micropayment system so that you never cross over a barrier. And anybody has democratic access to become a seller on it. Google's going to hate it. Apple's going to have a problem with it. It's got to happen. Somehow these companies are going to have to come around. Oh, because Google wants all your stuff to be free. They just own the monopoly for advertising. They view you as nothing. Google's idea, all right, the, ad, the idea that advertising is the central activity of civilization was not invented by Sergey. It was actually this guy named Chris Whittle, who had a proposal in the 90s to fund American education with advertising in the classroom. And that's such a perverse idea that it's almost hard to get at it. And so I was asked to debate him <coughs> at either TED or Davos or one of these highfalutin silly things. And I came up with a metaphor. I said, funding education with advertising is like connecting a tube from your butt to your mouth to get nutrition. 
So, the body can eat itself for a while, but will eventually die. And Google is doing exactly the same thing with culture and intellectual activity in general. You can't make advertising. Advertising is fine as an accelerant, but as I put it in the, in the book, you know, you can't accelerate a vacuum. You can't make, make advertising the core, only protected, only contextual, the, Google ads are the only things that can't be mashed up. They're the only things where you always know the origin. They're the only things that are always in context at all online these days. And you can't have a civilization that runs that way because eventually there'll be nothing left to advertise. When the machines get good, the, the body will have eaten its own nutrition and the tube will fall out of a, of a you know, corpse. <laughs> it's, I, I'm sorry to be so, you know, I don't know how to be vivid enough to try to get through how bad an idea this is. So. Uh, I just have to talk Google into giving up the advertising model, and um, it, the only the only problem is all these shareholders. But the thing is, um, the thing about it is that I really believe that this other world of routing expressions between people and helping people sell each other expressions is not only the sustainable one, but the much bigger one. I'm really convinced that that world would create vastly more wealth and well-being, and I'm convinced that if we had, if that world had come about, we wouldn't have had this recession. And that, that, there's a little bit of complexity to that because I think if that world come about, the, the hedge funds and pyramid schemes couldn't have happened too because the, they're, they're all of a piece. But you can read about that in the book. Hi, Rick Allen, KPFK. Loved your interview on Digital Village Saturday morning, by the way. Oh, okay, um, cool, thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, just to uh, get back to your Finnegan's Wake idea, it isn't an, as long as it took to write it. it uh, can't uh, I, an ongoing blog, you know, that we hear now every day, every day, you know, like a, a continuation of a day in the life, can't that some way be extended in, into a kind of Finnegan's way? If sure. You find a way to pay for it? One of the things I try to be absolutely clear about is that I'm not condemning any particular technology or design. I think anything can be used well. In the, in the book right at the start, I have some suggestions for things to try. So for instance, if you're tweeting a lot, think about trying to tweet about your internal state instead of external events so you don't fall into the fallacy that external events define you. Um, in the same way, uh, I, I'm going to be the last person to suggest that Facebook or blogging or anything is hopeless. Blogging is actually a better thing, and that's a whole other story. But um, uh, th there are, see, you're responsible not to run somebody over in your car, and yet it's also true if you put a stop sign in the right place, it'll save lives. So the, the micro sense of personal responsibility is just as real as the macro sense of trying to design things to bring out the best result. They're not in conflict. They go together, and I'm talking about the macro level. Darren, I was wondering, um, I'm a professor, and I was wondering about best practices for online education, which we're being pushed for more and more, in terms of getting around these uh, Web 2.0 problems, if you have recommendations. Yeah, uh, I'm really struggling with this because there's a, uh, I've had, I teach sometimes too, not, not so much in the last year or two, but I've had a lot of trouble with every student having this carbon copy uh, sensibility about something because I all read the stupid Wikipedia page and, and, or, or something, some other fallacy along those lines. Uh, and I think you have to kind of push them and challenge them harder than you used to because there's this sort of lazy thing. Plus, um, there's this problem. All right, if you're, it depends on the age of the students. If they're undergraduates, they're, uh, they've already started to grow up with Facebook when they were teenagers. And um, 
the thing about this, there's a generation divide, but it's exactly the opposite of the cliche. The cliche is that the young people get it and the old people don't get it. With Facebook, it's just the opposite. If you're old enough to have a job or kids, then you get Facebook, because you use it to connect with old friends and stuff. It all makes sense. If you're 17 and you're inventing yourself, then you have to use it out of fear instead of love, because you have to manage your reputation really carefully to make sure that you aren't the odd man out in the status game. And so you have to, you, it's as if you're about to run for president, and you're, you're worried about paparazzi or something. Um, and of course, 17-year-olds don't complain about it because it's all they know. They don't have any context. Um, it's a disaster, in my opinion, because what happens is it promotes this kind of very cheerful um, conformity. And it creates, it's almost like, <laughs> I, and I could go on and on about this, and it's uncomfortable because I, I hate to be in a position of saying, oh, the kids are all screwed up. Uh, and in general, I don't, I mean, I, I loathe being in that position. And I think almost always when anybody says that, they're wrong. But I just really think in this particular case, um, there's some ways in which they're not screwed up, but there are some ways in which this is a problem. Uh, I think in order to invent your persona, in order to invent yourself, you have to be doing some forgetting. But, you know, face, you know, privacy equals theft to Facebook, your privacy, and you're not allowed to. So just imagine, to go back to characters and uh, to writers, uh, Mark Twain, Jack Kerouac, Bob Dylan, if any of them had face, Facebook pages, they wouldn't have been able to reinvent themselves. We would have lost them. It simply couldn't happen. You can't move to a new town and experiment. It's so sharp-edged. You, you never get a break from it. You're never, you can never afford to turn it off. It's because bad things could happen. And, uh, uh, and so when they come out of this sort of conformity and this constant tending of this weird digital representation, which is this thin, flat thing that means nothing, it's very hard to get them to break out of that and say, actually, we're going to study biology or algorithms or the history of literature or whatever the subject is, and you're actually going to confront reality here and you're going to think about it. It's, it becomes a harder transition. Um, they're brilliant. Like if what you say is, I want you to contribute in class and I want you to make an essay that the class will like and I want you to participate, they're great at that because that's what they've been socialized to do. But to really confront and really invent, um, it's extraordinarily difficult for kids, and not all kids. Once again, broad brush, okay? With, with plenty of exceptions, but I'm very concerned about the broad trend. Um, thank you for your presentation. I'm very thoughtful. Um, Richard Love, I wanted to ask you two simple things. One, yeah. did you pick up that musical instrument in Luang Prabang? In the what? Luang Prabang, the royal capital of Laos, the thing that you played oh, on oh, the oh. stage. I am so sorry. Um, I traveled to the Thai-Laotian border, crossed over, and visited a bunch of little towns with some friends who were music students at Vientiane. a- is where'd you go, Vientiane? I, instead of pretending, I'll just tell you I'm spacey and I can't remember the details. Let me recommend going to Luang Prabang, the old royal capital of Laos, where that musical instrument originated. I right, think right. you'll find it fascinating. Yeah. Okay, um, aside from the travel. No, no, that's good, it's good. Because um, the culture still exists there. Oh, I know, no. I know, I love, I love going there to play because obviously I'm not playing it traditionally and I, I love freaking them out. Okay, so the next thing, the next thing that's pretty cool is uh -huh. um, I am not a hacker or a code writer. Uh -huh. I was trained as an architect back when computers didn't exist. And I know I studied cybernetics, I actually was a lecturer at an early age at the University of California about information theory. Mm -hmm. uh, so here, take my advice, I'm not using it. Um, 
basically, uh, there's barriers to entry for people like us, and I actually have an idea that would be a paradigm changer. How can someone like me, who's not in the industry, communicate with someone like you personally and share those ideas? Me personally, I'm totally oversubscribed. I just have to tell you that honestly. So you're welcome to write to me. I have a public email, and I do read my email, but I just, I just get so busy, it's really hard. And I get a lot of people's proposals and patent ideas and all kinds of stuff, and it's yeah. just hard. Um, what I do want to say is um, the world is big and wide, and just be determined, and good ideas will find a way. But it's hard. You just have to keep on. Um, you have to just keep trying, and the right connection will appear. I mean, I, I, I. That, that hasn't proven to be true, actually. <laughs> uh, well, and, and if it's a it's a very simple concept. It's just a single idea. It sort of changes the paradigm, and I, I think people are being forced. Well, to you can it. write me an email. I just can't make you promise. That's all. I, I mean, listen. Let me put it this way: If I wasn't so overworked, I would have remembered all those towns in Laos. You know, I just, I'm just like, believe me, I'm at capacity. I, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, hi, um, John English. I, I just wanted to see if you could uh, comment on any connection or or, or relevance with, with um, what you've been talking about to um, uh, Doug Engelbart's bootstrapping. And you know, it's interesting. I was at um, was the uh, 40th anniversary of the 1968 demo a year ago, and, and um, Alan Kay was there, and he was rather. He didn't really mince words about where he felt things were at right now, and he was pretty angry. One of the things he said was, you know, give us the computer back, and I'm just curious if... Yeah, people who've been at it for a while tend to be pretty angry because uh, um, compared to what could have been, what is right now, it doesn't look so hot. And, and for somebody like Alan Kay, it's, it must be just excruciatingly frustrating. And I, I uh, so um, some of the people in the audience won't know who we're talking about. Um, Doug M. Gobart, um, was one of the internet founders, founding figures. He invented the mouse and uh, sort of Windows in the first incarnation before they overlapped. And uh, did the first word processing demo and the first telecollaboration demo and a bunch of other stuff, um, if I remember correctly. Very, very sweet man. Um, I'd like to recommend if you go to Stanford's uh, website and do a search, you'll find a set of uh, dialogues and talks that Alan and I and Doug and some other people did for a, what might have been the 30th anniversary or something, but it was a similar event, and I think you might find that interesting. Um, and Doug, people have different specialties, I'd say, and Doug has a profound sense of humanism and a profound sense of design, um, extraordinary. I, I think once in a while he can get a little lost in abstractions that are a little less juicy maybe than they ought to be or something like that. And the bootstrapping thing has left me a little cold sometimes. That's just me. Um, and, uh, but I, I have the, the highest degree of affection and admiration for both of them. Hi, um, my name is Sophia and I was just wondering if you were familiar with the book Against the Machine and if so, if you had any thoughts on that. I couldn't quite hear the name of the book. What is it? Against the Machine. Oh, Against the Machine, that's... Um, Siegel? Is that the author? I believe so. Yeah. Oh, it's very nice. I mean, it's a, it's a book by a person who's uncomfortable with, with the stuff I'm talking about and writes subjectively about uh, how it makes him feel. And I think it's an authentic and useful book, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.